Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That's Psalm 130. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to start with. We have many other verses. Today our subject will be redemption as an end. And we're still working off a thesis of Bernard Lonergan from his book called, oddly enough, The Redemption. And it's thesis 15. We're going to take a look at some other principles of his. But most of all, we're going to look at the word, the word in which we hope. Redemption as an end, an objective, a goal. We're not unfamiliar in this phalanx with the end or the objective or goal, if you want to call that, denoted by redemption, that momentous biblical word called redemption. We've confronted the end with the Greek word telos, T-E-L, OS. This little TEL group has a phenomenal importance throughout Hebrews, the key concept being completion. We're going to deal today with the complete Christ and that you are part of the complete Christ, and so am I. Tatelos, it's an article before it, the, the end. And that TEL group, T-E-L, that semantic group is, again, very significant. In fact, the word tetelestai is part of that semantic group, finished. It is finished, and that's the selected name for our particular little flock, our little phalanx. So we're not unfamiliar with the word end in the word telos, and we find it in a passage that we've called before and we've dealt with as a micro-apocalypse, an apocalypse in a little section of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. And we're going to go there. I retranslated this. I don't want to go by translations I've done in the past, so I retranslated this. Then comes the end, he says. Then comes the end. There is an end coming. Tatelos. When, and this is a word that I just noticed recently, it's the word hotan in the Greek, H-O-T-A-N or hotan, and we're going to see how that 
works. That's H-O-T-A-N, because there's a hard breathing there. Hoten. Then comes the end, when. Somebody says, when is the end? Jesus said, no one knows the time of the end, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son of Man, but when is the end? Here's your answer. When he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the Father, having brought to nothing, having abolished, having eradicated every opposing sphere of influence and all adversarial authority and power. That verse alone is a very strong comfort to me, especially in the times in which we live. He brings to an end. He abolishes all antagonistic and opposing power is what he means here. All power that's opposed to his grace, his unimaginable mercy, his electing grace, his unconditional and unrestricted and universal love and mercy. All power against that brought to nothing. For he must reign as king. Basileo, Basileo there means reign, not just reign, but reign as king. He's not waiting to reign. He is waiting. You're not the only one waiting for him. He's waiting for you. Hebrews 10.13 says, Having made one offering for all time, this man, the man Christ Jesus, the new Adam, the mediator of a new covenant, the great archpriest, sat down, enthroned. And from now on, says Hebrews 10.13, he's waiting for the fulfillment of his father's promise to put all his enemies under his feet. He's waiting for that. He's not going to bring it about himself. He's waiting for it. The Lord is the one who brings our enemies under our feet the Father particularly, but we'll also see the Son's part in this. So then comes the end when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, having brought to nothing every opposing sphere of influence and all adversarial authority and power, for he must reign as king until he, who, we'll see, puts all enemies under his feet. Perhaps the most significantly referred verse in the New Testament of the Old Testament, Psalm 110.1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. Quoted in Matthew 22.44 by our Lord Jesus himself. Quoted in Hebrews 1.13 and, as I just said, in 10.13. All of this is an exegesis of Hebrews 8.1 for those of you that are waiting to get there because the sum of all that we're saying right now is that we have such a great archpriest as one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All this is an exegesis of Hebrews 8 for those who are locally and regionally and throughout the country, wondering when's he going to get back to Hebrews 8? Doesn't he have anything on it? <laughs> and I do. Here, enemies in verse 25 is linked with 
every opposing sphere of influence. That's how you translate or interpret sphere of influence because enemies under his feet. That, that's why I translated it opposing sphere of influence. And that includes angelic and human. For these powers, dunamis, archons, and exousia, all these words are applied to angelic beings as well as human authorities like Nero Caesar, the beast of revelation, not a future one, one that's already come and gone, been here, done that, and died. And Christ isn't coming to rescue a handful of people and bring them to heaven. He's coming to restore all things, to renovate the entire creation, to liberate and transfigure all of the universe, including everything that the James Webb telescope can picture, and all of humanity, the dead and the living, the bad and the good, incidentally, the bad and the good. That's also from Matthew 22. Go out and gather them up the bad and the good, and bring them in to my feast, says the Father. Bring them in. Who? What if they're not good? What if they're not ready? What if, bring them in, bad and good. The Father shows mercy to the bad and the good. He makes the sun shine and the rain fall on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. And we, the line runs through us all. All of us have a line of justice and injustice. All of us have bad and good. And if you think you're all good, I'll pray for your stunning arrogance. First Corinthians 15:26, "The last enemy to be abolished is death." Now we have another reference in verse 27, "For he put." everything under his feet. Who's he and who's his? This time the reference is not to Psalm 110.1, but to Psalm 8.6, Septuagint 8.7, also a notable and important verse in Hebrews 2.8. And we're going to pick that up in a minute. Now when it says, he goes on to say in verse 27, he has put everything under his feet. It's plainly understood that the one who put everything under his feet is excluded from the subjected. So picture the father placing everything under his son's feet. The only one that isn't placed under the son's feet is the one who subjected everything under the son's feet. Which That's a statement of universal restoration, incidentally. The subordination is salvation. We've learned that from, that's one thing the patristics or the church fathers gave us that was right on target. They didn't, they didn't understand Christology very well or eschatology too well, but they did give us that understanding. That, as Origen said, if the father is the only one accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, from this subordination, then everything else is subordinated and that subordination is equivalent to salvation. We've worked that out elsewhere and probably will again. Verse 28. Now when, he uses the word hoten, so there's a connection here that I never saw until 
I look carefully at the Greek text. Hotan is used again. It's used in 28, and it's used in 24. The end is when the Son hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And the end is also when everything is subjected to the Son, then he, the Son, will be subject himself to God that, so that God may be all in all. That's the end, God being all in all. All in God, God in all. It's called the universal perichoresis by everyone from John of Damascus to Jürgen Moltmann. Universal perichoresis. They used to call it the circumincession, mutual interpenetration of God with his entire creation and all humanity. It's actually the completion of creation by redemption. Redemption is the completion of God's creation in a new creation comprised of a new Adam. So I ask the question again, and this is going to, the development of these messages is only something that the Holy Spirit does, I think. So we have to just let him, I like to let him roll with the message. Who does the subjecting of all things? Now you say, is that the Holy Spirit that asks that question, or is it your spirit, or is it you? Or the whole? So I don't ask that question anymore, because 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is of one spirit. And we'll explain what that means a little bit. The Lord is Jesus Christ, and our Lord Jesus Christ always, since his incarnation and forever after, always operated in another key word we're going to bring forward, theandric action. Theandric. This is a key word. It comes from the Greek word theos plus anthros, which is a more noble term for man. Anthropos is man, but andros means noble man or a particular gentleman. Theos plus andros theandric. Everything Jesus Christ did since his incarnation and from thereafter is done in the inseparability and inconfusability of two essences, divine and human. And I'm Ever since I said Jesus is a divine person with a human nature, I went in and went, Ansit, is this the case? And I've further gone through a lot of theology and Christology since then and have come up with some insights that startled me, and I love them. But theandric action, lots of times we look at the Gospels and say, well, Jesus did this as a human. He asked where they've laid Lazarus. He didn't know. He was human. And when he walked on water, he did that as God. That's not true. He did everything as God and man in one life, one being, one hypostasis. Everything he did was theandric. It was an inseparable and inconfusible, non-confusable union of the essence of humanity and divinity. Everything he did was theandric action. 
the action of the God-man. We can say of Jesus, not that he is merely a human person like us, we are merely and only human persons. He became like us, in, in the likeness of us, but that was limited because he is not merely a human person, he is a divine person with a human nature which he assumed in what we call the kenosis, what Paul called the kenosis. The self-humiliation of the Son of God which is so astounding itself before we even consider the cross that he endured. It's amazing, the humiliation. He is the child that we must become like if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Except you become like this child. He's not speaking primarily of the child he took outside of the crowd. He's talking about himself as the child of God. The son of God, the unique son of God. And that's going to be, that's a whole other subject. Not another. There's no such word as another. A whole another, there's no such word as another. Holy other, maybe, yeah, but that's an entirely other subject. And we are going to hit it because it's of great importance. And so when he walked on water, he did this theandric action as, God, as the God-man. We can say of him that he is a divine person. We can say of him that he is a divine human person. But we can't say that he's merely a human person. And when we are partakers of the divine nature, we cannot say that we are divine persons. We can say that we are human persons who have a graced participation in the divine nature without being deified, without ceasing to be human. When God became flesh, the word became flesh, he became not God by becoming flesh while he did not cease to be God. This is the kind of language you've got to use with Christology. And you either love it and end up worshiping or you end up insane in an institution. And I was in both moods lately. But it's worth, going, it's worth the study. So who does the subjecting of all things? In Psalm 110.1, it's clear that the father brings all the son's enemy under his son's feet. You, son, sit next to me, my right hand, until I make your enemies a footrest for your feet. So the subjector is God the father. And so this is also unmistakable from Hebrews 10.12 to 13, where the scripture says, this man... Can we call the God-man a man? Yes. Can we call him God? Yes. Can we call him the God-man? Yes. Can we call him a divine person? Yes. Can we call him a divine human person? Yes. Can we call him just a merely human person? No. Because there is in him, in the hypostatic union, in the canotic nature of his personhood, he is inseparably and inconfusably human and divine. All he does, he doesn't do, oh, I'm going to go over to my divinity and do this. By omnipotence, I'm going to do these miracles. And now, well, I'm going to go jump over into my humanity now and say, 
I don't know when I'm, when I'm going to come again. Or where have you laid Lazarus? Because I really don't know. Did he really not know? Yeah, he really didn't know. By so much, he limits his divinity. By so much, he limits himself in his, what is called, canonic state, the state of kenosis. No, he is one person with one life, divine and human. All that he does, all that he says, all of his speech acts, including the cleansing of the temple, the kicking over the money tables, are done in theandric action. The God-man does it. God is involved, man is involved, in the God-man doing it. He walks on water as the theandric person, God-man. He does miracles that are theandrically performed by the God-man. And when we start to divide his divinity from his humanity, say he did that in his humanity and that in his divinity, we are entering into some territory that is false doctrine. When we say that he really did know, when he said he didn't know, we're getting into docetic Gnosticism. There is these, we have to steer between these rocks of Nestorianism and monophysitism, which is one, uh, the belief that he only had one nature and all. There are so many things, and I didn't realize how many there were until I studied Bulgakov on it and then picked up, I thought, anywhere I wanted to in Barth, and he was saying the same thing, so that was weird. Kind of Halloweenish. So the scripture says this man, the man Christ Jesus, the new, the new Adam, the theandric person, the great archpriest, having made one offering for all sins for all time, sat down and that from then on he is waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. Now, it doesn't say he's waiting until he puts his enemies under his own feet, but he's waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. Now it's actually a thesis after our 88th that even Jesus is waiting. Now, Emery's going to try to steal that and say that's his thesis. <laughs> and in a way, it is. We're one spirit. Um, but it's a thesis. Even Jesus is waiting. Most of life is waiting. Even Jesus is waiting. You think you're waiting with anticipation? You may be participating in his own anticipation. We're both waiting. Jesus and all of us in union with him are both waiting for the same thing. All the enemies to be put under his feet, the last of which is death. You're never going to read about death again, never read an obit, never read a funeral announcement, never go to a funeral, never hear about death again. Death is gone, eradicated, has to cough up every victim it's ever swallowed. Death. And that's the name that's cast into the lake of fire, incidentally. Not the name of people. It's the name of the enemy called death and his cohort, Hades. 
his co-conspirator Hades. They're both riding the same horse in Revelation. They both go to hell. As it were. So who does the subjecting of all enemies and then of all things, however, is ambiguous in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26 in a way because in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, it is clearly the Father who does the subjecting. But then again, and this is what happens when you've been reading the Bible and taking it seriously for 50 years. You think of Philippians 3.20 to 21, which is also an allusion to Psalm 110.1 and to Psalm 8.6. Because there it says that we are looking or anticipating from heaven a deliverer, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who will change these bodies of our present state of humiliation and make them conformable to his own somadaksa, his own body of glory. That's the radical alteration of our condition, which we're waiting for. It hasn't happened yet. You can't even make it happen at the gym. But in Philippians 3.20, it goes on to say, he has the power to subject all things to himself. He does this. He changes our bodies in his own theandric action as the glorified Christ. It's the action of the God-man that does this for us. But this God-man can subject everything to himself. So the problem, I love problems because I know there's a solution. So the problem is soluble or solvable if we advert to Jesus' sayings in John 10. John 10. If you want, you can turn there. If not, just note it or you can get the notes which will be published. John 10, 17, Jesus said, The Father loves me because I lay my life down in order to take it up again. That's not why the Father loves me. The Father loves me because his Son laid his life down and took it up again and considered me to be in him when he did that. I was crucified with Christ, raised together with him. And I love this one, 10.18. No one takes my life from me. I myself have the freedom. He's, remember, everything he says and does is a theandric action, speech, speech act, miracle, whatever. This speech, I myself have the freedom to lay it down, to sacrifice my life. And I have the power to take it up again which is in resurrection. I have the power to take it up again. I've received this command from my Father. Remember last week we remember, or 
last week or the week before, the commandment that he received from his father is eternal life. And that includes, son, you have the power to take your life back up again after you lay it down. But here's where the problem is solved. In John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus' life is a divine and a human life. It is one life, divine and human. Inseparable, not confused natures or essences, it's, it, it will literally take forever to even try to figure this out. That's, that's the beauty of it. You're not supposed to, fi- oh, I got it nailed now. No, you don't. You just, you're going to look at him and it's never stop looking at him. You hear people, oh, they passed away, now they're with their husband. No, they, I don't think they've gotten their eyes off Jesus yet. No insult intended to the hubby. I don't see how we're ever going to get our eyes off him because everything about him is fascinating. His face is the face of God and we see God in his face. But his face is also the face of all humanity. It's the all face of all humanity. You will see in him a very familiar friend of, that you, wait a minute, you're familiar. I, I know you. I've known you, haven't I? He'll smile. Because he will delight in our wonder. He'll delight in it. He's the answer to it. It's one life, divine and human. All his actions are therefore divine and human, not some merely human and others merely divine. When we talk about kenosis, we're not talking about the end of his divinity or ceasing to be God. He remains God but limits himself to theandric action. So when he says, where have they laid Lazarus, he's speaking as one human divine person. Doesn't your divinity know? Aren't you omnipresent and omniscient? Yes, but I've limited that. Don't you understand? I was in the form of God, but now I've taken the form of a servant and come into the likeness of sinful flesh. There's more to be said about that, too, because, of course, he was without sin. But his very living in this world was living under the corrupt and corrosive influences of this world. He did not escape them. Beware of docetism, which is a Gnosticism, which kind of says, well, he didn't really feel pain. When he felt pain, it was the God-man feeling pain. Not only that, the pain was also experienced by the Father and the Spirit, though in different ways, but in infinite ways. Infinite ways. 
So in connection with this theandric action of the unique God-man, there is also his union with the Father and the Spirit, a union that's far more union than we've ever imagined. All his actions are therefore divine and human, not some merely human and others merely divine. All his acts and actions, including his miracles, his thoughts, and his speech acts. Speech acts means things he did that said something while he wasn't really talking, like cleansing the temple, a forecast of A.D. 70, among other things. And as this guy Sergius Bulgakov said, as he put it, speaking of the work of Christ, one of the most particularly brilliant pieces of writing that I've ever read was in his book, The Lamb of God, under the title of The Work of Christ. The Work of Christ. Of the Work of Christ, he says, it was accomplished through his human essence in inseparable and inconfusable union with his divine essence. In Bulgakov, I have notes on the margins, and some of the notes read something like, I've never heard that before. And then I put ARK, NB, 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 ARK, that's my initials, NB is nota bene, note this well. And when I do it three times, it's like, I got to go back to that someday. And then I put a QQ, quotable quote. And I put a QS, quidsit, what is that? Look at this again. As it is, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead by the Holy Spirit. Clearly, Romans 1-4, Romans 6, 3-4, Romans 8-11. So the Son also has power to raise himself up in his theandric action. And evidently, he did do this. Because what does it say in John 2.19 when Jesus is confronted early on with his opponents? He said, go ahead and destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The theandric God-man is saying that. And John put that in early rather than later because he knew that was going to be one of the most sticky points of contention when it came to choosing to crucify Jesus Christ, when the witnesses come forward. He said he was going to destroy this temple. It took 47 years for Herod's workmen and construction company, the Herod Construction Company, to renovate this temple. That's what he said. And in John 2.21 it says, he was speaking about the temple of his body. But he says there, I will raise it up. When Jesus, the incarnate word, speaks, he speaks theandrically. When he acts, Jesus acts theandrically. There is an obvious Trinitarian action here as well as theandric action of the God-man. 
the divine and human person. What am I doing on a Sunday morning of all things on the day of a Steeler opening game? What, are you, what am I doing here? Teaching Christology? Are you kidding me? What kind of disaster would happen if every pastor was doing that today? Well, it would be the disaster of more people seeing Jesus with the eyes of enlightened hearts. That's what. I might have had doubts and confusion before, but when I saw the man Christ Jesus, I was sure of my own gender. And I'm not going to go there. No, uh, not going there, not going there. Don't want you to know what I think about a lot of things going on right now. Part of the reason for that is I don't want them to come after me too soon. Who's they? I can't say. And so, there's an obvious Trinitarian action here. So put Theandric with Trinitarian, and you begin to understand the divine and human person, the only son of God, small s-o-n, the only son of God, and there are many, countless sons of God, but he's the only one whose true consciousness allows him to say, I and the Father are one. I can say I'm a son of God. I can say you're a son or a daughter of God. But I can't say I and the Father are one. One in essence. One in being. One in name. One in act like Jesus can. Again to quote Sergius Bulgakov. All human beings he says are sons of God. How dare you say that. All human beings are sons of God, but no human being can be conscious of his divine sonship in such a manner as to say, I and the Father are one. John 10.30. As Lonergan put it, and I'm bringing old Bernard or Bernard into the picture, God the Father neither made his own and only son out of pre-existing matter, nor created him out of nothing but from eternity generates him out of his own substance as consubstantial with himself. But where are we? We're speaking of the end denoted or signified by the consequential biblical word redemption. And ever since we've come back face to face, that's been the topic, redemption. This end is obviously connected and even defined by the subjection of all things under the feet of Jesus, the Son of God, whom Hebrews, more than any other book, arguably, allows us to see. Crowned with glory and honor. We see him by a spiritually quickened imagination, not literally. We see him through a spiritually invigorated imagination with the eyes of our heart, as Paul put it in Ephesians 
We're afforded this vision by Hebrews, but also by the Gospels, the Synoptics, the Fourth Gospel, and once we understand, the Old Testament. No book like Hebrews for showing the Old Testament in the new and the new in the old. None like Hebrews. So we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. We even see him waiting. In the penultimate realization of Psalm 8, 4 through 6 in time. But though we see Jesus, it says, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Hebrews 2, 8. B. That's really an awesome description of we see Jesus. Why? Because having reconciled the world to God in himself, God was in Christ in two ways. The Father was in him. The Spirit was in him. But in the other way, God was in Christ because the divine essence was in him as well as the human essence was in him. Reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And so we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, says Ephesians 1.7. But between that time when God altered the situation for the whole world by reconciling them to himself in Christ, and the time when the Lord will subject everything to him, and that includes the changing of our bodies, which I call the radical alteration of the human and the universal condition. Between that time, I hate to tell you, that's where you are. That's where I am. That's where, it's called agona. A sphere of contention, challenge, combat. Adversaries coming at you. Time to be armed with the full armor from God. It's the agona. It's between the two alterations. Confidence in the first alteration gives me great stability. Confidence in the coming change of condition gives me great immovability. So that we can be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord and because of the Lord, your work is not in vain. So though we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, we don't yet see everything subjected to him. And I always say the same thing. If you don't believe that, take 20 minutes out to watch the news. Or take a walk downtown anywhere. It was relatively quiet in my neighborhood this week, and there wasn't I didn't see any crimes going on. I, I didn't see everything subjected to the Lord, but I was tempted to think so a couple times because it was perfect, it was still, not even a leaf was moving, the squirrels were running around. And one came up on the porch and I had to scare him away because I thought he was gonna crawl up my leg. But and uh, it seems like everything is subject. And then all of a sudden, I see a little girl walking with her parents back from school. And they're supposed to be at school because all the kids walk with their parents to school. And she was saying, I'm not going to school. 
I hate school. I hate that place. I will miss you. And the parents were caving into her. Why? Because though they took her back home, so she didn't have to go to school. What are they going to do the next day? My nephew Mac once, when he first went to kindergarten, he came back home that night, and his mom said, Becky said to him, well, you got to get up tomorrow early and go to school. And he goes, what? i got to do that all over again. <laughs> and he, you know, he did. He subordinated. But even that little thing showed me not everything is subjected yet to Jesus Christ because not every child is subjected to its parents, etc., etc. But obviously we go to other places and see wars, rumors of wars, starvation, famine, murder on our streets, unpunished, murderers running rampant, and all kinds of things. So we don't yet see everything under his feet. The worst thing get, the worst things get, the more we anticipate with great anticipation that that will happen. And as Moltmann used to say, the chains chafe all the more the closer the liberation comes. Liberation comes. Closer the liberation, the more the chains on your neck and hands, the manacles chafe. The more you want out. The more you see your deliverer coming. And he is. And so during this time in between, we see the Lord... We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. But we don't yet, not yet, not yet, see everything under his feet. Why? Because this is the time in between the alteration of all things by the reconciliation of the world to himself that God wrought in him. 2 Corinthians 5.19 And that was wrought by Jesus our Lord in his theandric action and Trinitarian co-operation. Let's take the word cooperate out of the picture and make it more emphatic. Co-operate. Co-operation. Together operation with God, the man Christ Jesus. Co-operating in and with the Trinity. In that action, God reconciled the world to himself, the good and the bad, the pretty and the ugly, everybody. Now, What's going to happen is a radical alteration that would be brought about when our great archpriest appears a second time with salvation in Hebrews 9.28. When the end comes in 1 Corinthians 15.24 and when God will be all in all in 1 Corinthians 15.28. That's what I'm expecting when he comes again. We're in the time between, in between. And that means that we're in between 
the penultimate, and this is important, this is where we're doing a little bit, little bit more of a accurate division of the truth here. As redemption denotes an end, it denotes a penultimate end. And that's kind of like the second to the last thing, as well as an ultimate end. The penultimate end ends up being the new covenant community called the church. We are the penultimate end of redemption. The ultimate end is the new creation of all things, including all of humanity. That's the ultimate end that redemption denotes. The penultimate, we're in the time then between the penultimate end denoted by redemption and the ultimate end. The penultimate end denoted by redemption in, in Lonergan's 15th thesis that we have in previous messages is the new covenant community. Now you say, where do we find that? In Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. We are exegeting it before we even get there, before you even know it. When you get there, you're going to say, we already did that. Yes, you did, we did. The New Covenant Community. The penultimate end denoted by Redemption, therefore, is this community in union with its mediator, Jesus Christ, which is the theme of Hebrews 8, 6 to 13. But the theme of his mediatorship and new covenant runs throughout the very, to the very end of Hebrews, like in 13, 20, when it says that God of peace, the God of peace raised up our great shepherd of the sheep, even our Lord Jesus from the dead, on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant. It also pops up in Hebrews 9.15, 10.16-17, 10.29, The ultimate end denoted by redemption then is the new creation of all things in which the new Adam comprises all of humanity in resurrection and all of creation in its liberating transfiguration. spoken of in Romans 8, 19 to 23, and other places. So in order to more thoroughly understand the end, this is the, well, let's say third gear out of fourth gear. In order to more thoroughly understand the end denoted by redemption, it's very helpful to bring up a thesis that we brought up, I think, in Revelation. I know, perhaps, again, in Better Call Paul, and I know, again, in Romans, we brought up the redemption Thesis 17 in Bernard Lonergan's Redemption. And this is why I bring it up today. In a book by Anselm, he wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo. Why did God become man? And it's a wonderful book by Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M, an old theologian. In an attempt to answer that question, Lonergan said this, this is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again, because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good, according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. And we've hit that several times before. 
That's what God's going to do through the law of the cross. Transform the evils of the human race into a supreme good. We'll be hitting this again in another micro-apocalypse, which is 2 Corinthians 5.14 through 6.3, which we'll be hitting. Now, I say this, the reason I bring up the 17th thesis in Lonergan's book, The Redemption, is because a supreme good is equivalent to the end denoted by redemption. The same thing. The end or the goal or the objective of redemption is the same as a supreme good, which is brought about by the just and mysterious law of the cross. So supreme good equals the end denoted by redemption. And this supreme good is also what is known as totus Christus, Latin term, totus Christus, the total Christ, the whole Christ, the entire, the, let's say, the complete Christ. Who is the complete Christ? Here's a hint. The whole Christ is hopefully what we're going to see and understand as we continue to see Jesus through the eyes of our enlightened understanding. But right now, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, notice this. In this time in between, what is the total Christ? 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the human body is one, that is one entity, a single unified entity, and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. So what is the complete Christ? It is Christ the head coupled with the parts of his body, which is every person of the new covenant community, the people of God, the people that have received mercy, that have received the reconciliation. The new covenant community, which is just a prolepsis or a preview or a foretaste of the universal community of mankind all in Christ. Ultimately, the whole Christ, right now the whole Christ is Christ and his community. He's complete. You are complete in him, but he is only complete because you are in him. The, the, the God-man, the God-man. He came not only to assume humanity to become the God-man, but to assume all of humanity in himself, salvifically. I know some of these things are hard to understand, and if you're finding them hard to understand, you're not flunking the class by any stretch of the imagination. You are being stretched. So the whole Christ is Jesus, the head of the body, and all the members joined to him by the Holy Spirit. They are joined to the Lord, and they that are joined to the Lord are one spirit, small s with him, one spirit with him. And thus participate by grace in the divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4. They constitute with Jesus, what? The temple of God. He spoke of this concerning his body, but the body of Christ all its members is also called the temple. What? You don't know you're the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. And even your human body is the temple of God in 1 Corinthians 
6.19, the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Ephesians 2.21, 1 Peter 2.5, which calls it a spiritual house. This is the new covenant community, the penultimate end denoted by redemption. And this is a supreme good. It's supremely good that you are in Christ and that he is in you and me. The new covenant community has in its union with Christ the capacity, and here I'm going to end on a practical note. It has the capacity for a graced participation in the divine solution to the present problem of evil and all of its manifestations. And this present new covenant community, if taught correctly and receptive to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, has real potential to be significant leverage for the redemption of this segment of history. In the ultimate end, the complete Christ will be all things comprised of Christ. And because God is pleased to dwell in Christ, and he is, then if Christ dwells in all things, and all things dwell in Christ, won't God be pleased to dwell in all things? So that God will be all in all. That's not bizarre thinking. That's the way God wants us to think. Now, I'm going to skip over because I, I don't want this to go way too I've already been going way too long on Sundays. It's a, I go a lot longer when I see you all face to face because I see you face to face. In this time in between, which we call an agona, I'm going to get practical now, just in case this is the last message you'll ever attend, or the last one I ever preach, who knows. Agona. Yes, if you wanted to turn the A into a Y. (laughs) Agon, agona, agony. That's... The perfect one-word description for the time in between the radical alteration of the human situation by reconciliation from enmity to peace with God and the change of condition when all the enemies are placed under the foot of the Son of God, under the feet of the Son of God, and when we are all changed and into glorified bodies. We're in between. As Vicky's hymn went, and I always loved that song, we, during this time, this agona of contention and spiritual combat, we are indeed to trust and obey the Lord. Not today, that couple of weeks ago. We trust in the Lord with all our heart in Proverbs 3, 5, and we obey by, quote, working out our own salvation. Paul says, you've been obedient while I was there, meaning to work out your own salvation. Be all the more obedient when I'm not there. Like two and a half years or something. 
And Paul wasn't there. All the more reason to be obedient. Working out our own salvation means allowing the salvation that we already have to be made effective in our present lives in the time in between the alterations as we await our deliverer from heaven who will effect the radical alteration of our bodily condition, allowing the salvation that we already have to be made effective in this time in between is simply by patient continuity under the influence of what we hear the Spirit saying to the churches. You know what that is? That's a thesis. In fact, that, and not the waiting one, is Thesis 89 of Hebrews 20.20. Working out our own salvation, and I'm going to be developing a doctrine of patience here, so watch how this unfolds. Working out our own salvation, Philippians 2.12, is patient continuation in the word, capital W. It is looking unto Jesus, the beginner and finisher of faith's race, the one who advanced into and triumphed in the agona by a feat, F-E-A-T, feat of faith, to look unto him, and that means only to him, and away from everybody else and everything else and every other situation, He is the beginner and finisher of faith's race, and then we are to run the race before us with patience. That's what it says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It is to this archpriest Jesus that we look. We see Jesus, but we actively look to him. We see him in Hebrews 2, 9. We tasted death for every man, every person, all people. But we look to him in Hebrews 12, 2. In fact, we're going to look at that in our closing, Hebrews 12. So we're kind of sandwiching in Hebrews 8.1. The patience in which we continue, this is extremely important. This is, the, this is your life. This is my life. Our one life. The patience in which we continue is a participated patience. Meaning... It's a graced participation with the patience of Jesus himself. We are joined to the Lord and are of one human spirit with him. One human spirit with him. The andros part of his theandros is a human spirit. Into your hands, Father, I entrust my spirit. We are of one spirit with the Lord with whom we are joined. And so our patience or perseverance is his perseverance. I, John, who am your brother on the Isle of Patmos, I am your brother in what? In the tribulation, in the kingdom of God, and in the patience of Jesus. So it's a participated patience with Jesus. So the first thing Paul says, he does his own little anatomy of love. It's the most famous verse. It's quoted by people in weddings and sorority meetings and all these things that people do without understanding in many cases in churches. 
His anatomy of love begins, and that's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. It begins with, hey, agape makrothumia. You know what that means? Love is patient. What's the first thing you're going to say in an anatomy of love, Paul? Love is patient. First thing about love, it's patient. Follow this, though, because this has got to be fleshed out, fanned out into a doctrine. I'm only giving you the bare bones of it right now. Now, God is love. And the one who abides in God, that is, in fellowship with God, abides in love. Of necessity, 1 John 4, 16, 4, 8 and 4, 16. The love which is called God love, God dash love, God love, the love that is patient. He that abides in God abides in love, and God's love is patient. He abides, therefore, she abides, therefore, in the patience of God love. We've said that most of life is waiting, even Jesus waits, as we've said, Hebrews 2, 10, 13. Love is patient, God is love. Therefore, God is patient. Human patience is a created participation in the patience of the Lord. The patience of his love. God's love is unrestricted and infinite. His love is infinitely patient, therefore. Well, even God, patient, comes to an end. No, it doesn't. Who said that? If God's patience is infinite, and we're supposed to regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, then the salvation that is God's patience must be infinite. Second Peter 3.15. So God is infinitely patient. There's a commercial that says impatience is a virtue. I beg to differ. Patience is a virtue. You say, is there a verse that says that outrightly? No, not outrightly, but says it very clearly because patience Macrothumia is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, so it must be a virtue. And thus it's a human participation in the divine nature and a graced imitation of Jesus Christ's theandric action all the way through his ordeal of the cross. The patience demonstrated by the so-called early church, in fact, was called strange patience. Strange patience. I know this, is a, this may be one of the longest messages I've ever preached. For that, I apologize. And I hope you get home in time to watch the opener. I'm more interested to see if Aaron Judge beats Maris's home run record, but that's baseball. It was called strange because Christian patience is not of this world. Speaking of working out our own salvation then, consider what Peter said in 2 Peter 3.15, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. 
our graced participation in the patience of the Lord is our salvation in time, in this time in between. Faith is almost always virtually equated with patience throughout Hebrews 11 and throughout Hebrews itself. Our lives are to be a feat of faith, F-E-A-T, an achievement and accomplishment of faith. An accomplishment wrought by God in us by his patient love and sustaining grace. So consider the patience of the Lord not only as our salvation, but of the salvation of the whole world. Because Jesus patiently endured on the cross until all the sins of the world were imputed to him and he became sin and put away sin because his patience endured the totality of the cross, then all who sinned are saved. Regard the patience of the Lord on Calvary's cross as universal salvation. How's that in the face? Our adversaries are real, incidentally. I didn't read Psalm 130 and read Psalm 3 this morning because it's a joke. There are invisible, invisible enemies that despise this message and they will do anything to undermine it or its messengers. So Jesus endured with patience until the power of sin was entirely extinguished. It's called expiation. And therefore he took away the sin of the world. Now consider Hebrews 10.36 where the spirit, Hebrews author says, you have need of patience. And now Hebrews 12, and we will close. So then, having such a great cloud of witnesses, speaking of Hebrews 11, and the feats of faith of people from Abel to the martyrs in the Maccabean era, Let's rid ourselves of every weight and easily ensnaring sin and advance with patience, hupamone, advance with patience, hupamone, another word for patience along with macrothumia, in the contest. Holy mackerel, it says agona, in the contest, in the agona, in the time in between. Advance with patience. In the agona that is set before us. It's set before us. It's what we're going to go through. Looking away from everything and everyone else. That word apoharao means away from. If there's shame at the judgment seat of Christ, it will be the shame that we looked at everything but him. Look to everything but him. Look to the next presidential candidate, the next senatorial candidates. Look to the human solutions of our time. Look to this. Look to this problem. Became obsessed with this problematic situation. Never looking away unto Jesus and being calmed by him. Looking away unto Jesus. Exemplar and completer of the feet of faith. F-E-A-T who instead of the joy that was set before him, talk about set before, he had joy set before him in the heavenlies. Instead of that, what did he do? He patiently endured, hupomeno, 
verb form, the cross, scorning the shame. What did Jesus do about the shame? The shame is, you know, if you go there, you're going to be stripped naked, beaten beyond human recognition, and he was not an ugly man. He was a very beautiful man. Psalm 45 says that he was the epitome of male beauty. How do you like that? He was. His defacing and his beating on the cross defaced the most beautiful human being that ever walked on this planet. That's the shame you're going to endure if you go to that cross, you know. You go to that cross, you're going to, be, that's, you're going to endure unbelievable shame. You know what Jesus said? I don't give a damn about this shame. That's what this means. Thinking little of the shame. He brushed it aside. He said, that's a small matter. It's a very small thing to me. I'm enduring the cross to extinguish the power of sin. Scorning the shame is how I translate this now, understanding it. Scorning the shame. And is now enthroned at the right hand of the throne of God. That sounds a little bit like where we're going next or where we've been since we've been back. We have a great archpriest seated at the right hand of the majesty. Only this time he just comes right out and says, the throne of God. Wake up. After I say these next four very brief sentences, the service is over and you can do whatever you want from that point on. In your patience, possess you possess your souls. Luke twenty one nineteen. This is salvation. This is working it out. This is our obedience, the obedience of faith. See ya.